Peter, I meant to tell you this off the wec- off the off the record for Ween. Uh, I saw a Ween shirt today, and I was like, I cannot wait to tell Peter about this. Oh, nice! Was it a Boogness <laughs> shirt? Yes. Fantastic. Fantastic. I'm cutting that. <laughs> no free Ween advertising. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, leader and Winnebago driver for America's premier country and bluegrass 90s cover band, Tub Scrugging. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I love it. How, Thank you. Chumbawamba. Yeah, how yeah. anarcho are you? Yeah. You know, about as anarcho as they come, honestly. Okay. <laughs> you did ask me how anarcho am I, right? Did I hear that question right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that is that is how an anarchist would answer that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> A man whose name includes, or nicknames include, DJ Hardbargain and DJ Shark Bagel, I feel like is pretty much an anarchist. Yeah. I don't disagree. <laughs> That's a co-sign from Jeremy. All right. Any other hosts here? Yeah, I'm a host here. Also. Very cool. And my name is Jeremy Ruggles. And, you know, everybody knows me as the host of this podcast. But what they don't know is that I'm one of the foremost Omnicord players still active today. Interesting. I heard you kind of single-handedly reinvented the instrument and repopularized it. Is that true? You're right. And <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm calling it rug style. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, it just so happens that I'm also trying to bring an instrument to greater popularity. But first... My name is Peter Cook, another co-host on this lovely podcast called I'd Buy That for a Dollar. And to popularize this instrument, I have gone to the top of the tallest hill in Kalamazoo and began playing it. And I only do so on misty mornings. So I'm calling it this project to popularize this instrument, Misty Hilltop Stylophone. (laughs) (laughs) for those who are familiar with the wonderful instrument that is the stylophone it's if you're not you will know soon when i play it from that misty hilltop (laughs) people gotta go real far up that hill to hear it but but it's worth it it is it's a kate bush song but just for peter (laughs) yeah running up that hill to hear a stylophone (laughs) and with us today the other voice that you hear is a guest returning to the podcast he is a lecturer of geography at the university of tennessee knoxville as well as the vocalist for the scream heavy punk band cave deco welcome back jake watkins 
there's no part of me that would rather be doing anything other than being here with you all tonight. Aww. Aww. Well, we're glad you're here as well. <laughs> we're, we're glad you saved a little bit of your voice for us. Yeah. <laughs> well, not much, but the best that I can. How you, uh, how you, you, you degenerates doing? <laughs> <laughs> we're doing fine and dandy over here. It's great to have you back. It's It's been a while. Like the stained guys said. <laughs> is it Aaron Lewis? That that would be a that would be a question for you, Peter. Is it Aaron Lewis? Is that his yeah. name? Yeah, Aaron Lewis is the singer of the post grunge band Stained. Yes, uh, n- not not a bluegrass artist or somebody from Appalachia. I would reiterate, you can't blame us for everything. <laughs> no, it's yeah. It sounds like you wanted to bring some home state pride to us or some regional pride to this episode is that correct yeah i guess the most qualified i've ever been to talk about a thing is uh i'm uh just a a dumb kid from the mountains of uh, east tennessee so you know i know a, a couple of things about bluegrass at, at the very least yeah. yeah and you're uh interested in the appalachian culture and where it comes from right yeah that's uh sort of been a a journey of mine is uh learning that, oh, you actually come from a somewhat specific and unique part of the country. And, uh, you know, not everyone exists in the same way that I did growing up. And uh, I was like, ah, cool, cool, nice. So you're going to talk to us about Brian Bell from Weezer, right? Isn't isn't that what you came to talk about? He's from your part of the country, right? Yeah, I mean, he's the reason I'm a geography major, because his dad was a geography professor at the University of Tennessee, and I uh, had this big plan to meet his dad so that I could eventually join Weezer. Unfortunately, he retired a year before that, uh, you know, I got there, but I didn't know that, and I declared my major anyways. This is actually true, right? This is actually true. Well, 90% true, yes. (laughs) True enough. This is, in fact... I did. Uh, I did know that Brian Bell's dad was uh, a geography professor, and I was very stoked to take a class from him. Only to find out that he retired. Some of the uh, details in between are, you know, maybe <laughs> myth, fabricated for you know a little poetic license you took. But well, in lieu of that, what did you uh, bring to us today? I have uh, brought you all a. Uh, a, a lovely record by Flat and Scruggs, uh, Banjo Heavy, and uh, we're going to be talking about some Foggy Mountains. Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs. Fantastic. Revolutionary. That's right. And we are going to kick this off with Side A, Track 1. This is the song Ground Speed off their album Foggy Mountain Banjo from 1961 on the Columbia label. So let's take a listen. Thank you. 
Wow, Sean, was your turntable set at 45 RPMs? That seemed breakneck speed. You would think so. That I uh, I tapped it out earlier, and it's like over 150 BPM beats per minute. Yeah, they're just flying on that track. Killer opening, just like the kind of the point of this record was to show off the instrumental prowess of the band members in this group and you know you can tell from track one they're here to show off just a little bit so just for our listeners between flat and scruggs lester flat and earl scruggs who's on who's playing what so lester flat is actually kind of best known as the lead singer of this group and this is an instrumental album so you're hearing him on rhythm acoustic guitar and then earl scruggs is the lead banjo player who made the Scrug style. The Scrug style. And we'll get into all of that and more as the episode progresses. It's got to be like kind of a bit of a bummer for uh, Mr. Flat to be like, oh, well, I guess I'll just, you know, hit the E string a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like the best, easiest gig ever. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. Depends on where you're at. But uh, oh, that's uh, it's it's really cool to sort of see the banjo like take over on this record. We haven't really had a lot of banjo on the podcast. <laughs> no, no, not much banjo. And this is officially our first bluegrass record. We've had like a little bit of country and some kind of adjacent genres, but no actual bluegrass up until now. You guys want to hear a banjo joke I heard yesterday? Yes, please. <laughs> uh what do banjos and murders have in common i don't know a claw hammer everybody's happy when the case is closed <laughs> <laughs> that's a banjo joke i deeply resent this <laughs> yeah i love banjo so <laughs> i i definitely know i know some people who are very phobic towards the sound of the banjo it's got to be one of the most commonly hated instruments I, in my experience. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, probably. Uh, no, but I'm from East Tennessee. Yeah, so. <laughs> in, certain, <laughs> in certain parts of the country. <laughs> it's a deeply polarizing instrument, I'd say. Yes. People like it, really dig it, but yeah. I feel like this is uh, as good of a time as ever to tell the story about this one time that I uh, got aggressively escorted out of our uh well maybe not our <laughs> favorite bar in kalamazoo because this guy told me that uh bluegrass came from ohio and he also pronounced it appalachia and <laughs> i uh did not take that particular you killed a man <laughs> i was close to killing a man but uh instead uh, a mutual friend of ours whose name will be omitted here uh was just like Jake, time to go home. <laughs> <laughs> Good call. <laughs> well, Luckily, that, Jacob Sellner was there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> was, yeah. <laughs> Shall remain anonymous. Yeah, I mean, that would have been uh, some some regional pride. You know, you just expressing it, right? <laughs> that, that right, it. yeah. I, I, it's actually kind of strange. Like, you know, my family is like deeply rooted into... East Tennessee, Western North Carolina, Southwest Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, etc. But 
not much of my family really cared a whole lot about bluegrass. They liked country music. And if I don't know if this is like a time to, you know, differentiate the two, but do it. Yeah. Well, my dad never really cared for, you know, bluegrass, but my grandfather, this is actually kind of a sentimental story, but uh, before he passed, he told me that he wanted to hear a mandolin one more time. And so I went and bought a mandolin and uh, I played it for him. And I had to really learn, you know, like the stakes are high. Your grandfather's dying, you know. <laughs> you yeah, gotta, geez. You gotta, <laughs> Talk about performance anxiety. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Way worse than anything else I've ever experienced. Uh, it's like, all right, well, Papa's dying, so I gotta, I gotta pull out this mandolin. But he, he also like didn't really particularly care for bluegrass. He liked Bob Seger, but. When I would go back far enough and, you know, like Papa would talk about like his grandfather, like playing banjo and porch strumming and stuff like that. And so, I don't know, it's kind of weird. Like uh, as much as bluegrass should be associated with sort of South Central Appalachia, I don't know that it's ubiquitous really. Interesting. And do you know if your family like considered it just like an old style that they weren't interested in or was it some other reason or do you even know like what their reasons were for not being into bluegrass? A hundred percent an old style thing. Yeah. Um, you know, they were all degenerates uh, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my dad liked Molly Crew and my grandfather liked Bob Seger. Makes sense. Yeah. Not a ton of crossover between Bluegrass and Motley Crue, but you know. That's the, that's not true. If my dad ever listens to this, it's not that he loved Motley Crue. Kiss. He loved Kiss. Mm. That's actually what was way more important to him. I just imagined I just imagined a Bluegrass cover band of Motley Crue, like Crue Grass. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got a band that you can tour with, Peter. Let's go. <laughs> that might be one of the worst things that I could ever <laughs> try to conceive of. All right. Well, let's, let's stop conceiving that. I got a couple of questions for everybody. So how do you guys feel about bluegrass and other traditional genres? Are you a fan? Is it something you seek out? Where are you at? Well, being a longtime Kalamazoo, Michigan resident, it feels like there's always been a pretty strong local following of bluegrass music. The NPR local affiliate WMUK has the long-running program Grassroots presented by Mark Salgren until pretty recently now his daughter Darcy Wilkin hosts that. That's still on. It's been on for, I don't know, 40-plus years. And so, you know, that would be playing on the radio in my house growing up. So, like, the sound of this record is very familiar. And there, there were like local cafes that would have bluegrass breakfasts where bands would be performing. It's it's around. It's in the culture of Kalamazoo, but it's nothing that I've ever really felt been completely drawn to. Like it's there, it's in the air. But you know, and I know the name, the names of these musicians. I've known them for years. But you know, I know Bill Monroe. But yeah, it's not so not a genre that I've ever sought out. Mm-hmm. Do you own any bluegrass records? I know you got a little bit of country music. Yeah, no, not really much. Um, I did take some guitar lessons from the musician Joel Mabus, who's 
kind of associated with with that as well. So I, you know, have some knowledge and background, but it's just never really spoken to me as the thing. Uh, you know, country music speaks to me much more, like a lot of traditional country music, than bluegrass. I think part of the reason for that is because while bluegrass is not inherently non-lyrical it tends to be and as such like you know country music which is not a at least early country music is not a far derivative you know is is lyrical and a lot of the lyrics that were in these folk songs that became bluegrass songs were kind of just omitted after a point and so I think for people who weren't there to hear, who were there to uh, maybe just experience the pleasure of like, you know, hearing somebody who can pick really well later on, you know, two decades, three decades later. uh, Well, uh, you know, there's no lyrics there. And so it doesn't feel as personal. Mm, Definitely. Jeremy, what about you? I think I was a little repelled by bluegrass through my 20s. I kind of grew up around it, mostly around more country-type music because half my family was from Alabama and came here to work at Gibson Guitar Factory and played a bunch of country music, and they'd get together on Christmas and do some more like bluegrassy kind of fiddling and picking and stuff, and... But yeah, in my 20s, I saw this thing that kind of makes sense in that it was being like appropriated into like jam rock culture, which is another, you know, mm-hmm. instrument driven <sighs> kind of, well, I, I'm with you and it made yeah. me like, I, I know you are and I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I very much had that association when I had roommates that were into jam bands in my twenties in the two thousands, they were also very into the bluegrass. Yeah. Yeah. And it's only, I'd say in the last five years that I've kind of like been able to re evaluate just bluegrass on its own, separate from that culture that took it and did what they did do it. Yeah, yeah, and I should, just a little amendment to what I said. I'm very open to learning more about it. I have nothing against it. It's just never something I've sought out learning more about. Yeah, I'm honestly kind of in a similar boat. I think for a long time, bluegrass was ruined for me by the modern fans of it in the scene around it. I would occasionally be like, well, this music is actually good, but I just, I don't want to be around anyone that's into this. It seems like, you know? (laughs) Oh, I I completely agree with you. And then as an adult, you start to reevaluate it a little bit. And it's one of those things where it's like, I know that I like bluegrass and I've known that for a number of years now, but I still haven't fully dove in and learned all of the history on it and started to collect more records. I've maybe got like, I don't know, five or six bluegrass records really. So I was excited to pick this one and start to learn a little bit of history. So before we get into another song, I want to go over just kind of a real brief history of what bluegrass music is and where it comes from. Bluegrass, much like country music and other genres, comes out of the string band tradition. 
for those not familiar, string bands were kind of early dance groups consisting of banjo, fiddle, guitar, and upright bass most commonly. And it was also frequently referred to as hillbilly music, depending on who was talking about it and where they're from. The interesting thing about string bands is the roots of it are actually in black culture. The banjo, in fact, is an instrument that was originally imported from Africa. And during like the late 1800s, the majority of string bands were black groups and black led. And because of this, one of the defining features of it is a very syncopated rhythm used in the, you know, the dancing and these syncopated rhythms became highly influential to other genres as it went on. So towards the turn of the century, black string bands became much less common and it started becoming more associated with white culture. And then string bands hit their commercial peak in the 1920s and 30s and then kind of fell apart and turned into country music jazz and bluegrass in a way maybe folk a little bit too definitely folk yeah i mean all of these kind of roots genres have a lot more similarity than you would think blues as well it all kind of blends together and then when you look at the the early roots of some of these other genres especially jazz and you know country and stuff you can see like oh, wow this is all kind of coming from some of the similar place and there's a lot of similar influences Jazz is a combination of ragtime and blues. Yeah. And I mean, ragtime and string bands were pretty much very similar. It was just different instruments that they were based around, really. But a lot of the same rhythms and a lot of the same kind of energy and a lot of the same influence on genres afterwards. And if you think about like early jazz, it was really common to have a banjo in early jazz groups. Yeah. You don't hear about many jazz banjo players anymore no not anymore yeah it's a it's a part of music history that's kind of mostly forgotten about at this point so the first bluegrass band was bill monroe and the bluegrass boys who formed in 1938 bill monroe is from kentucky and like we said he's pulling influences from all over blues jazz country gaelic folk songs and he performed in a string band lineup but his music, much like early jazz, was much faster and more energetic. Like we said, you know, that first song we heard was a breakneck tempo. Yeah. I think something to note about Bill Monroe, Eastern Kentucky, as opposed to this also goes into like the perception of Nashville as being the country music hub and Lexington as well, or Louisville. But he was from Eastern Kentucky, which is has nowhere near the same accessibility, and which is actually kind of an interesting thing about uh, Scroggs is uh, he is sort of from a part of North Carolina that you would not necessarily deeply associate with Appalachia, but still technically based on like you know, the definition of Appalachia. It's kind of on the fringe. But, um, yeah, uh, eastern Kentucky, like, that's coal mining country, which is where a lot of this comes from. Interesting. That kind of matches their attitudes, too, come to think of it. Sure, With, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll get there later. 
<laughs> One thing with Bill Monroe and his bluegrass boys is he wanted to take these roots genres that were an influence on him and kind of legitimize them for a wider audience. Because at the time, a lot of this so-called hillbilly music was considered like a lesser form of music, like for a poorer class of people and the more legit venues didn't want to feature it. And one of the things that he did was he purposely had all of his band members perform in like, you know, in suits, they were well-dressed. He made sure everyone, everyone had a professional demeanor when they're on stage and when they're playing. And it was kind of a hard work ethic with this. Like everyone had to be really good at their instruments. They had to show up on time. They had to bring it, you know, they couldn't just be messing around on stage. And he really wanted to combat the kind of hayseed stereotype that was going on with, you know, the Appalachian area and the music that he was associated with. And similar to jazz, to keep kind of hammering in this comparison, he also very purposely gave all of his band members regular solos throughout most of the songs and had no problem sharing the spotlight with the other people in his band, which from my impression is something that really carried on to a lot of other bluegrass bands and was kind of part of the culture. I would say that uh, that whole, you know, like putting on, you know, a, a, a nice like tie and suit thing actually still carries on till today or at the very least you know maybe 20 years ago i mean uh, 30 now but when i would go to play in jams or at least like go like see jams like bluegrass jams everyone was always like <laughs> ties up to their neck and you know looking really fancy even if it was at like a vfw which no hate on the VFW. Sorry, podcast. But yeah, everyone like always uh, were dressed up like really nice to do their little like bluegrass or folk jams. And that tradition has not stopped. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how many things were started by some of these early players and have just never changed. Like it was done right the first time and everyone's like, all right, this is tradition now. So we're going to get into another song in just a second, but my last note here is that the bluegrass sound, the way we think of it today, officially came together in 1945 when Bill Monroe's current banjo player, David Stringbean Aikman, left the Bluegrass Boys and was replaced by a young hotshot banjo player named Earl Scruggs. Uh, Lester Flat was already in the band at this point, so both Flat and Scruggs come from the legit first bluegrass band and then went on to great fame from there so let's hear another song this is i would say the biggest hit from this album the one that gets the most play from it this is a song called cripple creek this is side a track six
I did a lot of research on this song, and uh, none of it is very conclusive. But I did find something very fascinating. So Cripple Creek could be a place in Kentucky. It could also be a place in Virginia. But the only definitive Cripple Creek that we have, which kind of tracks with bluegrass stuff, is a coal mine in western Kentucky. I'm sorry, uh, western Colorado. And there was a sex worker there called the Soil Dove of Cripple Creek. And that was about as far as I got on the research for this song, or this arrangement in particular. Oh man, Cripple Creek comes up in a lot of songs. It was also definitely the influence for uh, the band song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then Neil Young has Cripple Creek Ferry. Yep. Yes, it's one of the uh, a great example of like imagined places in which like in the same way that I, I guess now would be a, the best time uh, to bring up Rocky Top, which is a somewhat bluegrass song that is a derivative of multiple blue like bluegrass songs beforehand in which it's an imagined place and it does not actually exist but people sang about it so much and played about it so much that it became an idealized like place of like in the mountains and in all reality i mean it was out in colorado but hmm. yeah it, it seems like that's kind of a common songwriting technique in country music in general it's just like imagining this idyllic place or like the perfect scenario and lots of nostalgia and all of that yeah there was a i, I was actually talking to my class about this the other day about um this rascal flat song about uh I miss Mayberry and it's like, well, Mayberry never existed. Like it was entirely created for the Andy Griffith show. Like Mayberry (laughs) is not a real place. So you miss Mayberry. You miss a place that was not real (laughs) that never actually existed, which is kind of the really annoying part about like trying to explain to people what Appalachia is, is, uh, you know, this, I feel like a lot of people have this idea of like, oh, well, at one point it was fine and like it was just, you know, a a culmination of small towns that, you know, sort of related to each other when in all actuality, like, no, that did not exist. None of that existed. A television show taught you between Andy Griffith and the Beverly Hillbillies, like that taught you that this place existed, but it did not. And it's, yeah, not a real place. And I think putting bluegrass as the background music for a lot of those shows that were filmed in Hollywood legitimizes this misconception. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the early perception of this kind of culture was playing into the stereotypes. You know, you you look at... Beverly Hillbillies, Hee Haw, things like that. Like they, they weren't necessarily helping themselves in legit, legitimizing what they were doing at times. Yeah. And like when you look at early hillbilly music, 
with like ex- like specifically uh fiddling John Carson. He sang a lot of songs that like the melody like people were familiar with, but just had horribly racist lyrics. And I think for a lot of like early like pre bluegrass musicians, that seemed like the thing to do because that's how the rest of our giant country perceived like this part of the world. Oh, you're just a part of the South. When in all actuality, we're not. So, Peter and Jeremy, you're both um, respected innovators on your instruments, as you know, referencing Earl Scruggs and the the work he did on the banjo. Are either of you very familiar with what the Scruggs style means, or uh, what the innovation was that he actually did to the banjo at all? No, I don't really understand the mechanics of banjo playing. I've played guitar for nearly 30 years but I well there's never... uh, strings and a fretboard and it kind of resonates when you pluck the strings <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah like i i like i understand it. everything's there that i should understand but like when i hear someone playing the banjo like earl scruggs plays it i have no idea how they're doing what they do it's like faster than i can imagine moving my fingers <laughs> well fun fact earl scruggs barely knew what he was doing either and famously could never really explain to people how he did what he did yeah. Well, that's helpful to me, understanding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been meaning to learn how to play Scruggs-style banjo for over a decade and never actually buckled down and done it. But I know it involves use, like, three fingers to play. You know, you're playing five strings, and it's a lot of, like, sweet picking kind of thing so that it's just very fast sounding yeah jeremy does have a banjo here in his house that was me just playing it I, apparently Whoa. i know something because that sounded decent <laughs> it's been demystified in real time peter now understands the banjo yeah it's in an open tuning so i uh actually uh, taking this uh, more seriously than ever asked i was at a bar last night listening to a banjo player and I was like, Hey man, you won't believe what I'm doing tomorrow. (laughs) But he described the Scrugg sound as being the opposite of slap bass. So you're essentially doing the same, same motions, but instead of popping the low strings or sorry, the, the high strings, you are popping the high string and plucking the low strings and i thought that was it finally made sense to me for a moment at the very least <laughs> interesting at the time he made sense <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i tried to get to the bottom of the difference in the styles and i don't necessarily fully understand it and I was, i'm obviously not an expert but i've tried to simplify this and describe it as best i can here so pre earl scruggs the most typical style of banjo playing was called the traditional or the claw hammer banjo style. This was done usually without finger picks, so you're using your your bare hands to play it. And one of the biggest differences is that in claw hammer, it's um, downward motions. So you're using a downward motion with your thumb, and then you're kind of striking the other strings in a downward motion with your fingernails. 
And, you know, there's different techniques to get your different sounds, but it's, it's a little closer to strumming a stringed instrument, how you would normally think of it. And then the Scrug style, he's using finger picks on his thumb, his pointer finger, and his middle finger. And the plucking style is different. It's still a downward motion with the thumb, but it's an upward motion with your two fingers. And the real genius behind the Scrug style is that because he's using these three fingers now, everything that he's playing is in threes. So he's taking a chord and playing the three notes from it in an arpeggio, one note at a time. But he's doing this in places where most other banjo players would have been playing two notes or like two phrases or whatever. So he's introducing all of these syncopated rhythms that are happening in different ways throughout the whole song. It's like this cascade of swing rhythms that are happening. And again, you can make a lot of comparisons to jazz playing in the way that he is approaching the instrument. So when you're listening to these songs, really focus on the rhythm and you can kind of like count the threes the whole time he's playing, but it's like they're not spaced out the same way. And it's part of why he had so much trouble describing what he did. When he would talk about it, he would just say, think of everything as one, two, three with those fingers and just make it work. Have fun with it. Cool. I'm glad you did some digging into that because yeah, I, beyond knowing that it's called Scrug style, I had no idea specifically yeah. what that meant. <laughs> and you know, it gets you a cleaner sound. Um, the, the attack of plucking the strings is different because you're using the picks instead of your bare fingers. There's a lot of little elements that make up the difference, but you know, you're playing more notes, you're playing faster. It gives you that, what we commonly think of as the bluegrass sound now with that banjo, just, you know, shredding the whole time. The original banjo sound was supposed to be somewhat dull also. Yeah, it was, I mean, my impression is that it was less of a lead instrument, more of a rhythm kind of backup instrument. That is a, yeah, that that's very true. And like, the Carter family in particular, I mean, they were looking for more fiddle music. And so when people started really going ham on the banjo, I think like the really like cool story and this very well may be legend as opposed to truth, but the whole, the story of, uh, you know, Earl Scruggs, like hearing his dad play claw hammer and then, like, seeing a, uh, a blind person use, as they say, the best middle finger, or the middle finger that changed the world, you know, seeing him, like, play in a, an actual finger-picking style is what inspired him, and then he just, you know, took off of it. And I think the evidence is, the, the proof is in the pudding. There we go. That's a... Oh, did you just come up with that? That's brilliant. Yeah, I think that might catch on. Is, wow. The proof is in the pudding. Trademark, Jake Watkins. You're like the Earl Scruggs of sayings. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Love you. <laughs> All right. So before we get into another song, I wanted to mention the other players that are on this record real quick. Of course, we got Lester Flat. We mentioned he's doing the guitar and typically would be doing the vocals. Like I said, he's most... Uh, notably remembered as a vocalist, especially his harmony work when he was with Bill Monroe. 
uh, is considered absolutely legendary. Brilliant singer and great guitarist as well. And then on Dobro or Resonator Guitar, we have Uncle Josh Graves. Josh also is credited with creating a brand new style of Dobro playing, which was based on the new Scrug style. Because of Josh, the Dobro became a staple bluegrass instrument. It wasn't common to be played in this setting before him. And his style of playing is still copied to this day. We also have Curly Seckler playing mandolin and guitar. He played with Bill Monroe's brother Charlie, and he's a longtime Flat and Scruggs member, and along with a few other members, continue to play with Lester Flat after the band's breakup. We also have the great Paul Warren on fiddle. He's a very respected fiddle player, another longtime Flat and Scruggs member. And because of being such a long-running member, he was one of the most visible fiddle players in his day. You know, you could see him on their TV show for the Grand Old Opry and lots of high-profile appearances. So th this was one of the most influential fiddle players of the time. On bass, we have cousin Jake Tullock, who is the longest-running member of the group and also the official band's comedian. He was the one to tell jokes between songs on stage. Wouldn't you know it? A man named Jake being an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and then not an official member of the group, but this record features the great Buddy Harmon on drums. Yes, who played on a lot of legendary recordings by Loretta Lynn and Elvis and Tammy Wynette. And then the culmination of his career happened in 1996 when he played on 12 Golden Country Greats by Ween. By Ween. <laughs> so as we said, this record was released with the intention of showcasing the virtuosity of the band members. Everybody in this group was top of their game, highly influential players, very respected. So let's listen to another song and appreciate the instrumental prowess. We're going to hear Lonesome Road Blues. This is side two, track one. Remind me again, 
Sean, what year is this record? 1961. Okay. Uh, yeah, that one in particular, the crisp production values jumped out at me. And I don't know if you have any information on that, but I thought that one sounded particularly like clean and excellent. In I don't have a lot of good information as to why it sounds this way, other than, you know, like I said, there's the in- intention. So they wanted to really make it clean and have everybody you know, hear all the instruments separated really well. One thing that you often hear with bluegrass is it's usually recorded through a single microphone. And, you know, these bands would have their steps memorized as to when you're getting in and out of the way of the soloist and getting closer and further away from the microphone. So that's one thing that kind of jumped out at me and why I picked this record is because it is a remarkably well-recorded bluegrass record. Part of it is Kingsport. There is a great misconception that country music and like any sort of like hillbilly music that is associated with bluegrass country etc comes out of nashville but it really doesn't it comes out of kingsport tennessee which i would love nothing more in this world than to not give kingsport credit for anything uh because it sucks but that is there were studios there that I mean, you know, the Carter family in particular would work with that really were good studios. And that is part of the reason that this record sounds crisp is Kingsport, Tennessee, which is it's kind of it's far northeast, close towards like Bristol, which Bristol is famously in both Tennessee and Virginia. But Kingsport is actually where a lot of those studios were and they took it seriously it shows i will say yeah yeah i will reiterate what you said sean like i mean it's an incredibly like crisp record Mm -hmm. and it sounds really good yeah and this album was kind of a big hit for him if you look through their discography this seems to be one of the better remembered ones for those that love this band and love bluegrass And I kind of wanted to figure out like what made this record special. And there's kind of an interesting little story around that with what was going on in the scene at the time. So like we said, bluegrass started in like the forties and by the time rock and roll was getting big and Elvis was becoming super popular. One of the effects of that is that bluegrass in particular, the bottom just fell out overnight it would seem saw some interviews with some of like the first generation bluegrass musicians. And they said it was just like shocking. It just happened all of a sudden they couldn't get any money. And there was a lot of groups that had to break up. A lot of people just couldn't survive. And there was only a few groups that had, you know, the popularity to keep going flat and scruggs being one of them. And one of the things that happened is, so there's the struggle in the fifties and then, you get start getting into the sixties and a lot of these artists were able to find a new audience with the college folk revival scene that was happening during the time. Mm. I uh, actually talked to somebody earlier about, I mentioned like I was about to do this podcast and they were like, Oh yeah. I uh, actually saw Scruggs in like the like early eighties, but you know, I was just one of those like college hippies. And I think that, yeah, is very indicative of where that genre went. Yeah. 
So this record in particular is kind of best remembered as being the one that broke them into that college folk revival scene, especially with it being really well recorded and having all of the instrumental expertise right up there in front. It really connected with that audience and gave Flat and Scruggs kind of a new increased popularity and new venues to play and further helped to legitimize bluegrass as a you know, a genre that could be performed in a college setting and recognized by academia. <laughs> yeah, I can see it. Early 60s, like, you know, the college students are hanging around and they have uh, Miles Davis sketches of Spain and they're smoking their jazz cigarettes. And then someone's like, hey, you heard this new flat in Scruggs? And, you know, they, they've had a... What's a, a jazz number. cigarette, Peter? Oh, I don't know. I, I've just heard that. I'm not, I'm not sure what the context would be. <laughs> yeah. So, Sean. Yeah. While you were learning all about bluegrass, did you happen to find some similar albums that you would like to recommend to our listening audience right now? Jeremy's been doing this a lot more than I have been, and I sound really stilted while I'm asking it. <laughs> Yeah, should we? Do you want to like tag Jeremy in just to like make it work a little better? Or he's just giving me the he's he's giving me the go ahead that, that, oh, okay. that was good enough, and we got to move right. along here. So cool, cool. <laughs> so I have three recommendations from right around this time period. These are not records that I own, but I did a little research on some similar albums from the time period that I can back, and I'll be trying to find copies myself. First up, the Stanley Brothers. The Stanleys in person from 1961 was another bigger bluegrass record from the time. Also probably, you know, winning them fans in the same circles as Flat and Scruggs. And the Stanley Brothers are another huge name in the bluegrass tradition. They're going to be going to be easy to find records by them if you want to start digging into this sound. Another one, Bill Clifton. The album is called Carter Family Memorial Album. Also came out in 1961. Jake mentioned the Carter Family a few times. That's a massively influential country group that, like, if you were playing any kind of music similar to this during the time, you were influenced by the Carter Family. And it's a fact that Bill Clifton did not ever inhale a jazz cigarette. (laughs) It's a fact. Some 90s presidential humor. Well yeah. done. <laughs> <laughs> Last recommendation, the Osborne Brothers. They did a record in 1962, possibly influenced by this one, called Bluegrass Instrumentals. Another group that was pretty notable for their vocal stylings, but wanted to throw out an instrumental record there and impress people with how good they could shred. They did, uh, they did popularize Rocky Top, which yes. is... One of the 10 state songs of Tennessee. We cannot decide on one, but, you know, we at least have options. Didn't y'all just add another state song? I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> isn't, isn't Copperhead Road on the list now, too? <sighs> Probably. I don't know. <laughs> one, of, one of your state songs is a song about growing marijuana, where it is illegal to grow marijuana still. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying Tennessee is the best state in the union. <laughs> I'm just saying I live here and I like it to a certain extent. Okay. All right. But thank you to the Os- Osborne brothers for, uh, you know, Rocky Top, which I now have to listen to every weekend in the fall because it's what the football team loves. 
Well, uh, does uh, Jake, while you're with us here, does is Cave Deco taking any stabs at you know creating the next state song? Is there anything else you're up to that you'd like to plug where people can find out <laughs> what you're up to? <laughs> no, 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 I don't think uh, goblins.com Cave Deco's hit single will ever be the state song of uh, Tennessee, but um, yeah, I do uh, holler, appropriate, uh, in a band called Cave Deco, and sometimes in a band called Tall Papa, and uh, I am, uh, yeah, I teach Appalachian Geography at the uh, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, so find me. Is Dead Man's Lifestyle stuff still up online for people to find? Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, I forgot about that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Dead Man's Lifestyle, if you want to hear long, drawn-out, ambient nonsense. That may or may not be inspired by Appalachian. Appala- is it Appalachian? <laughs> it is Appalachian. Thank you, Peter. Yes, <laughs> Appalachian sounds. Yeah, uh, there is a, an element of that in, uh, in Dead Man's Lifestyle stuff, so yeah. That's also a thing you can look up on Bandcamp. Great. Well, it is just wonderful to have you back. It's been too long. It's it, it's the only way we get to hang out nowadays is yeah, through these I microphones and headphones. Deeply uh, miss uh, all, all three of you idiots, so... You pause uh, for a second. For... Which 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 one of us drew pause? What? <laughs> He's just trying to put something on you oh, because uh, that's how he that's how he shows love to you is that's true banter. That's the, true. The okay. thing that Sean Sean and and Jeremy have taught me how to that this is a way that people communicate and show <laughs> affection. <laughs> well, well, off the record, if we're still paused. Uh, Peter, Sean, I can't wait to see you all in the near future. Jeremy, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, thank you all very much for having me on uh, for the third time. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to keep trying harder consistently until the point that, uh, you know, once again, I will take over this podcast and you (laughs) all lose your jobs. And there will be no, I'd buy that for a dollar, except for with Jake Watkins stating when it is time to record. All right, later. (laughs) I really, it would have been fantastic if then you just were gone and. (laughs) Yeah, a slightly thinly veiled threat there. (laughs) All right, excellent. Well, do we have any final thoughts before we talk about the song that we're going out on well uh my my only final thought is that flat and scruggs broke up in 1969 because lester flat wanted to play traditional music and he formed a group called the nashville grass and earl scruggs wanted to play more interesting modern music by the time the band broke up his sons were playing and he started a band called the earl scruggs review with his sons where they covered modern music like Bob Dylan and stuff. And he kept playing until 2012, lived to be 88. Yeah. Lester Flat died in 1979, I believe. Yes. Yeah. He was about yeah. 10 years older than Earl Scruggs. But if you look at video footage of them, he looks like he's got a solid 30 years on him. I think they led different lifestyles. Yeah. That fucking rules. 
<laughs> so we are going out on the final song on the album. This is side two, track six, Cumberland Gap. I'm co-host Jeremy. I'm co-host Peter. I'm co-host Sean. And I'm Jake Watkins. Cumberland Gap is a fine place to be if you want to buy a bunch of Confederate flags. Don't go there otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Pro tip. <laughs> <laughs>